From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department's Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Accreditation Board has a new leader. The board's original vice chair, Carlton Johnson, will take over from Ty Scheiber as chair. Head of communications for the board, Mark Berman, is out too. The Defense Department says Scheiber and Berman weren't removed, but FedScoop reports their involvement in a partner program generated tension. Congress is considering a Department of Veterans Affairs plan to reprogram $243 million of its funding in the CARES Act. $193 million of the money would buy a software-as-a-service solution to replace a legacy education benefits system for the Veterans Benefits Administration. FedScoop reports the rest of the money would go to the VA Office of Information Technology to support the new system. The nomination of John Gibbs to be the next director of the Office of Personnel Management is on hold tonight. The Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee had a vote on his nomination scheduled for Wednesday, but Federal Times reports the committee hasn't named a new date for the vote because members want to learn more about controversial remarks that Gibbs has made. Almost 6,800 people have submitted retirement claims in the month of August. They will be out of the government soon. About 15% of the federal workforce is eligible to retire today. Tammy Flanagan is Senior Benefits Director at the National Institute of Transition Planning. Tammy, thanks very much for coming on the program. You talk to people all the time about what their retirement goals are, about what they're thinking about retirement. You're the person that lists the best day to retire in government every single year. What's the tone been in the people that you talk to? What are they thinking as a result of COVID? Is that changing the way that people are thinking about when or how they want to retire? Uh, Francis, sometimes I think it is, but in other times I really think that some employees are just business as usual. We've converted to this virtual world quite nicely. And um, just yesterday, I actually taught one of my first in-person classes, socially distanced, of course, and the class all had masks on, but I actually came out and taught a class. And I've been doing a ton of virtual training. So everything I had scheduled to teach um, in person this summer pretty much has switched over to webinars or you know whatever type of virtual world we, we live in. And people are still just as interested about planning their retirement. Um, some people are actually thinking of going sooner than later because they like the idea of um, not having to go and do that commute every day. They've gotten used to it now. So some people have said if they get called back into the office that they might just put their papers in because they don't want to get back into traffic again. Well, that's been the thing that I have wondered about throughout the entire course of this, Tammy, is that things that we didn't maybe think about. When we've talked about retirement, you and I and other people on this program and other venues in which I talk to people, we always focus on the job stuff. And it strikes me that the, what, you're, what people are, sounds like are telling you is, I like my job fine, but it's the stuff that goes along with it that will be the biggest de determiner as to what I do strategically when I go or how long I stay. Am I, is, is that your sense too? Yeah, it often is the case because what I hear, whether it's pre-pandemic or during pandemic, is sometimes it's a change in leadership where I'm not sure I'm going to get along or I'm not going to like you know the new regime that takes over. So that that puts a lot of people into the retirement mode. Um, in many cases, it's the money, of course. You know, making sure that everything falls into place and I'm going to be able to replace enough of my 
my pre-retirement income to be able to live comfortably. So it's the same types of concerns that people had before this all started to what they're having today. I really don't think, other than the, the stay at home rules and the social distancing rules, that that's having a lot of impact. And, and from that end, I think that some people um, may want to work longer because they like the convenience of working from home. So if that continues for another six months or another year, they might be willing to stick it out a little longer. So it's it's interesting to talk to people to find out that they have the same same concerns, whether we're doing this in a virtual world or, or whether we're going into the workplace. You have uh, your, your most recent column in government executive focuses on some of the alternatives that people try to convince federal employees and, and retirees to think about. What's your take overall on what you are aware of that's out there and the things that people should think about when people offering other options other than what is provided for them as part of their standard um, federal benefits package? What should they be thinking about when they consider these alternative pitches? I think it's always important to understand what you have as a federal employee before you talk to someone who might be either selling something or promoting some product that um, they think might be in your best interest, and it may be, but you really want to know what you're giving up before you take advantage of that. And that can be anywhere from replacing the survivor benefit election with some type of an insurance or annuity product. It can be to whether or not it's best to roll over my TSP into an IRA. And it can even be something like FEHB coverage, the federal health benefit coverage when it comes time for Medicare, knowing what choices to make and whether to go with a on the market Medicare Advantage plan or whether to use FEHB. So I think you're right, Francis, a lot of people are faced with uh, making these kinds of decisions between maintaining their federal benefits that are very valuable and shouldn't be underestimated to sometimes being pressured into some type of sales product. So you got to be really careful. Um, there's There unfortunately are some scams out there that are less than above board, so we always have to watch out for those. But even with legitimate decisions, um, you know, sometimes it might make sense to buy insurance. Sometimes it might make sense to use a Medicare Advantage plan, but you really have to weigh out the pros and cons and understand both sides of it before you you make an important decision like that. And the thing that I think people don't always remember when they get to those decision points, Tammy, is that every benefits expert who knows what's going on in the federal government and also knows what is going on and available in the private sector and doesn't have a vested, vested interest in selling somebody something always says whatever the federal government offers you is the gold standard and is probably going to be better than 70, 80, 90 percent of what might be available in the private sector. Is that the experience that you've had too? Yeah, that's because every time someone does tell me I heard this or I was offered this or I'm thinking about doing this, and I sit down with them and I show them, I say, okay, you know, that's fine. And let's put that aside and look at what you have in your federal benefits program just to make sure you're going to make the right decision. Once we lay out the, the facts about each benefit and the pros and the cons of each one, because some of the government choices you make will have some disadvantages. You know, you take a survivor benefit and your spouse might die before you. So that's the nature of insurance. So I think once they understand the things that are at stake, and the, the benefits of each decision, you're right, they generally do fall back to the federal um, decision. But, you know, everybody has a choice to do what they want. I just want them to be educated and understand what they're giving up or what they're gaining.
Tammy Flanagan, it's great to have you back. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Thank you, Francis, as always. Up next, enterprise risk management as business as usual. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the change you need to manage risk at your agency. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The president's management agenda lists risk management as one of the steps in several of its cross-agency priority goals. The coronavirus has highlighted a need for planning for risks in government. Rafael Boris is president and CEO of the Homeland Security and Defense Business Council. He's former undersecretary for management at the Department of Homeland Security. Rafael, welcome. It's good to see you. What is your sense of how agencies have done on an individual basis and collectively across government? in implementing risk management policies and procedures. Well, uh, good to be with you, Francis. Uh, you know, in many ways, uh, I haven't seen uh, a significant change over the last uh, uh, four or five years. Um, I think one of the struggles has been with the implementation of uh, enterprise risk management is to recognize that uh, it's a way of doing business. It's not just a program that gets implemented and gets assigned uh, responsibility, uh, or also the, another challenge with enterprise risk management is many people view it as just a compliance program or business continuity program. Uh, so it really is a way of doing business. Uh, and the recognition that enterprise risk management is more of a philosophy of how you manage your organization, along with the tools and the, and the techniques that you use to be able to effectively manage the organization is the key. So, you know, the federal agencies have have uh, uh, taken baby steps, uh, but they still need to continue to push forward and adopt a more holistic and truly holistic form of enterprise risk management. When you use the word philosophy, that says culture to me, and the culture obviously is much more difficult to drive than policies and procedures, Raphael. How have you seen this worldview, this mindset change well in private sector organizations or within pieces of DHS when you were there or other any other organization that you've looked at over time? Yeah, you know, as I've been talking about enterprise risk management over the last several years, uh, I continuously remind folks that it's as much a behavioral change uh, as it is anything else. Uh, the need to understand that you're uh, implementing a, 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 a system of beliefs that requires you to change how you think about uh, the way organizations run are, and are managed, uh, as well as recognizing the need to understand what are the risks, the threats to the organization, whether it's a public or private sector organization, and how do you identify those? How do you develop mitigation plans to deal with those? And then ultimately, how do you manage that? And the challenge, uh, Francis, with so many organizations is uh, we have built organizations uh, to effectively run themselves in, as individual silos. This is just as true of the private sector as it is the public sector. Uh, so that's why I say it's, it's a behavioral change. Uh, you really have to sell it. You have to be able to explain to the leadership and to the rank and file why it's necessary to change the way that we think about uh, the things that affect the organization. Uh, you cannot isolate uh, risk in one part of an organization without it uh, touching all the other parts of the organization. So that's the real challenge. It's a behavioral challenge. You're right. It's a cultural, behavioral, 
change that needs to take place. I recall a conversation that we had back in my radio days when you were still at the agency, and one of the issues that you told me then that you struggled with was helping people understand that it was okay to even consider risk. There's obviously a risk aversion um, uh, culture in the federal government, and it's been that way for a number of years. What have you found between then and now is useful to help the rank and file people understand we recognize stuff's going to happen that we're going to have to manage and recognizing that we're going to have to manage, manage it is the first step to being able to do so effectively? Yeah, you know, it, I think it required uh, giving people permission uh, to uh, admit that uh, not everything is going to work perfectly and that there are going to be challenges. Uh, you know, when I think back to my days at Homeland Security, or even whether it was uh, commercial entities or other public entities uh, uh, where uh, enterprise risk management was uh, discussed as a means to be able to improve their organization, uh, it was getting people to recognize that it was okay to say that this activity, this initiative, this program that we're going to embark upon uh, may not succeed unless we identify those factors that contribute uh, to uh, uh, risk. Those contribute to the lack of success. Identify those, monitor those, measure activity, and then give people permission to say, okay, it's not going well. Uh, what can we do to get this program back on track? Uh, that's the key thing, giving people permission uh, to say that everything has to be perfect. Uh, and also, you know, it was just as important having these conversations with the GAO and the IG here in the federal government uh, so that they understood that there were going to be times that we were going to come forward and say a program is at risk. Uh, we've identified what those risks are and what the threats are to the success of the program. We have in place a mitigation strategy and we're going to begin to uh, actively both implement and monitor the success, the success of that. Uh, so. Uh, it's no longer your hair is on fire. Uh, uh, let's uh, let's go to Congress and uh, and, uh, and 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 plead. Uh, you know we need forgiveness, but no, let's get ahead of it and manage it. Less than thirty seconds, Raphael. What will you watch moving forward to see how agencies make progress in these areas? Well, you know, it starts with how people talk about it. Uh, again, if people talk about enterprise risk management solely as a compliance function, or uh, really as a form of business continuity, uh, then that would concern me that we haven't uh, uh, changed uh, our mindset uh, about what this needs to be really as a, an approach to how we manage our organizations. So if people continue to compartmentalize it, uh, stick it away in the corner, that would concern me that uh, we still have a tough road ahead to get people to fully adopt enterprise risk management. Rafael Boris, thank you very much. It's great to have you back. Great to be with you, Francis. Thank you. Up next, cracking the code on shared services under the president's management agenda. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why the new shared services aren't the old shared services. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back.
Welcome back. Agencies pooling resources together to save money and work more efficiently is a key element of the president's management agenda. The push for shared services started decades ago, and it's accelerated under the Trump administration. Robert Shea's National Managing Principal for Public Policy at Grant Thornton. He's former associate director at the Office of Management and Budget. Robert, welcome. It's good to see you. You have an up-close look at what is going on with two of the administration's shared services efforts. What's the difference between what we're seeing today with the CUSMOs and what's been going on in shared services in government in the past? Because it strikes me they're two kind of different models. Yeah, you know, I was uh, perusing old laws the other day, Francis, uh, and came across a provision of the 1990 CFO Act that actually, uh, w when it set up the CFOs across government, encouraged them to find ways to consolidate financial systems because they knew the Congress knew in its infinite wisdom that um, agencies would be buying the same kinds of things and there's an opportunity for efficiency there. So that's one example of something that we've tried to accomplish over time. During the Bush administration and a little bit during the Obama administration, we took the autocratic approach, which was thou shall migrate your systems to one of a limited number of shared services. The Trump administration has taken a little bit softer approach, um, setting up these quality shared management services operations called QSMOs, quality shared management uh, operations. Quality um, service management organizations. Thank you very much. I, 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 I don't have my acronym, acronym game on this morning. I knew somebody um, needed to bail you out. Thank you. So, um, you know, in that case, uh, they, they've set up these organizations that are designed to uh, establish marketplaces um, and working closely with customer agencies to set up standards um, and, and drive consolidation, but in a way that's much more customer focused. So, so that uh, over time, um, agencies will want to migrate to these uh, services, not necessarily be forced to adopt them. Is that the main difference between what you've seen in the past? National Business Center at Interior has done a lot of business for agencies and government over the years, but is that customer focus, that customer experience piece of what the CUSMOs are trying to do, the main difference in what you see? I'm not implying that NBC didn't do that, but it, there, there never seemed to be a big motivation on the part of the agencies, even when you told them they had to, to go and, and work through those organizations. That's right, your, your incentive to be customer focused when your customers have no choice but to use you is limited. The government overall has improved its customer service culture uh, and expertise. So that is, that is a major uh, theme, a, a major factor in the drive to shared services under the Trump administration making sure you're asking the customer what they want, constantly assessing the extent to which you're providing services that satisfy the customer, and, and modifying and adjusting should you need to do better. Uh, that constant feedback loop is a major part of the QSMO initiative. I want to shift gears because another issue I know you're paying attention to is the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee. Uh, and the way that it's examining waste, fraud, and abuse in the CARES Act. What, in your, what is your sense of what's different about what the PRAC is doing compared to, for example, 
Special Inspector General for the Troubled Asset Relief Program, SIGTARP, or uh, the RAT Board, the various other organizations that have had oversight over these large amounts of money that the government pays out in benefits, what's different about what the PRAC is doing compared to those other efforts? Well, I, I think one of the things you'll recall, Francis, is during the Recovery Act, um, there was an enormous focus on accountability and uh, an agreement among all parties that we need to ensure um, uh, to protect against waste, fraud, and abuse. In this case, programs have been established so quickly and the amounts of money we're talking about are so much more massive than anything the government's ever handled in the past. Um, and the programs don't have a lot of guardrails. The, the, the Recovery Act was spending money through existing programs and it made a big deal that every expenditure was gonna be transparently reported and that we would take every effort to minimize waste, fraud, and abuse. That has not been the case in this situation, notwithstanding the fact that we've got a special congressional committee, we've got the PRAC that you mentioned, we've got the Special Inspector General for Pandemic Recovery, in addition to GAO and the Inspectors General, uh, you know, this this lack of a, an accountability focus, all these myriad accountability uh, institutions trying to get at the same thing means we don't necessarily have as coordinated approach as we should and we're seeing the result of that. The the um, the amount of fraud already detected is massive. Hundreds of millions of dollars in, uh, in, in suspected fraud or potential duplicative payments. So we're a little bit chasing our tail here trying, trying to get a handle on this. Robert Shea, thanks very much as always for coming on. It's a great tie. Good to be with you, Francis, and thank you so much. I'm Cherise Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.